Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? This is week 11 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about 1993's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Man, what a movie. Weird entry uh, in the Christmas movie. Ouvoir. I don't know. I love this one. This one is a part of my family's little uh, box of christmas movies that we watch every year so for me this is a very familiar movie what do you think is the pull of this movie for your family to get into the annual staple rotation my kiddos have a very different pov on 90 percent of the world so anything that they're looking at they're going to see a little bit differently for whatever reasons they look at this and they see art they see creativity. They uh, It reminded me of Miracle on 34th Street when he says, you know, the France nation, well, it's important to have imagination. And this is one of those movies that I just think is oozing imagination. I, I just love it. It's so visually like entrancing. I, I, I could watch it and watch it and watch it and see new things every single time. This is a movie, like many that we've covered here, where I was familiar with so much of it, but never had seen it from start to finish. I knew all of the big songs. I probably knew four of the songs, like, by heart. And again, never have seen the movie. That's, I think, just a testament to how in the uh, Christmas zeitgeist this movie has become over the last 30 years. All of the popularity for this movie really has come around in really just the last 20. This movie laid silently. It came and it went quickly back in 1993 and then laid dormant for about 10 years. And it, it wasn't until the early aughts that it actually became the kind of modern Christmas classic that it's that it's taken up. So it has a really interesting history. My first time watching it, so that that's the point of view I'm bringing to this, is this was visually stunning. I think probably the most attractive, like visually, the most visual feast for your eyes that we've covered so far in our first mm-hmm. 11 weeks. Stop motion animation is a painstaking process. I, I know a bit about it. I'm, I'm a fan of the art of it because I think it really, it's animation taken to the next level. This is so, so well done, and it really is truly just a beautiful thing to behold. It's the kind of thing where you want a coffee book of it, like an art coffee book, (laughs) you know, big glossy pages uh, just kind of sitting uh, on on a bookshelf or on your coffee table just to flip through, just because it's just so stunning. And it's interesting that you you use the word beautiful, because obviously most people would say, oh my gosh, this movie is anything other than beautiful, but there is something to it that is beautiful because while it's not the the traditional beautiful of a Christmas movie, you can still appreciate how detailed and how thoughtful and how carefully crafted everything is that you're looking at. Like there's no detail here that, that didn't go, you know, without a lot of thought behind it. I think that that itself makes it beautiful. It makes it art. 
for me, so much more so than so many of the other movies. It is art. And I, I think I would I would look askance at anyone who would not consider this just true art. And and yes, are some of the characters disturbing? Are some of the animated sequences scary? Sure. I mean, I, I completely understand why back in 1993, Disney, which originally is is going to release this as a Disney film uh, under the Disney animation uh, company changes it at the last minute michael eisner watches the film and is like no 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 this movie is too scary for kids <laughs> and puts the touchstone and puts it under the touchstone banner which for people who know or don't know is the kind of adult label it's where disney puts its movies that are not being marketed to kids for kids this movie comes out in 1983 as a touchstone film in its subsequent re-releases in the in the 2000s when it begins getting released annually and it gets converted to 3d and they really start making a ton of money off of this film now and when you watch this movie now now it has the walt disney studio brand logo on it so they've seen the error of their ways or just the changing (laughs) tastes of of audiences where now this movie went from being bizarre and odd and too intense for kids to annual family fair i think that when disney embraced it and realized how much that kids can actually enjoy this i mean kids enjoy halloween as much as people kind of feel like well it's scary it's whatever well there is something to be said for that side of art and imagination everything that is imaginative and creative doesn't need to be beautiful and flowery and pink and purple you know you can use black and grays and create this beautiful palette that is horrifying in its own way i mean look at jack skellington one of the probably has become one of the most iconic disney animated figures there is try and go into a disney store and you go into the Mm. disney park especially at halloween time and you're inundated with with jack skellington costumes for adults and for kids and the guy except for when he's in his santa gear is black and white it's the only disney main disney character ever just to be monochromatic there's no color to jack skellington that's crazy that's crazy it is it is and it's it's one of those things where it challenges the viewer as to what is art you know does it have to be beautiful and you know little bluebirds on your shoulder to be impactful to be a good story and it not necessarily have to be scary it's just a different pov so let's talk about the origins of this movie we have to go back to 1982 really tell the story of the nightmare before christmas 1982 there's a young guy working at disney as an animator his name is tim burton by all accounts he is a loner he is an oddball he is considered bizarre even the people at disney didn't know what to do with him I so wonder what the hiring process looked like for that. Can you just wonder what the like the HR was like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you'll fit in well here. <laughs> I mean, he looks like he comes out of Vincent Price Central Casting. He does. I don't know how he went right through the process. To be honest with you, all these guys. There's a whole generation though where they all they all came up together. Tim Burton, Brad Bird. Katzenberg. I'm forgetting a host of animators. This generation that would go on to define through right now today the the generation of animation that would would dominate the world. Uh, Tim Burton was a part of that. He was he was part of that class of minds of of just a skew of center minds. And uh, in 1982, he has his first success for Disney, and uh, he's sitting there. Uh, a couple of different stories. He's given a couple of different versions on what happens. The the one that I read the most that I liked the most was that he was watching 
uh, a store change over its decorations from Halloween to Christmas and the ideas of ghouls and goblins being replaced by Santa and reindeer uh, in a, in a window f- a storefront. And it, it sparked his imagination. And as you can imagine, Tim Burton is a guy who likes Halloween, but he likes growing up. He was kind of a lonely kid, likes all holidays. He likes getting lost in the holiday. He likes a time of a year having a meeting and a purpose. And so you don't get bigger holidays really than Halloween and Christmas, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. world just becomes dominated. Especially from a kid POV. Yeah, those are your two biggies. Yeah, not a lot of kids getting excited about the old horn of plenty that accompanies Thanksgiving <laughs> Or time. Valentine's Day even. Right, or whatever. right, like, right, it, right. That's not for them. You yeah, know? Tim Burton wasn't going around talking to people about his sweet babu. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think he was giving out Valentines. Uh, Probably not. So he goes home and he writes a poem. It's a three-page poem called The Nightmare Before Christmas. And it tells the story of Jack Skellington, his dog Zero, and Sandy Claus. And that's it. That's what the poem is. No other characters that are in this film are featured in the poem. He has this idea that he wants to make it a special. He wants to make it a TV special or a short. Some kind of ad, some kind of short animated special. He takes it to Disney. They like Burton because he's done good work for them, but they're not really interested in making this bizarre thing that he has come to them with. You know, a pumpkin head guy? You know, trying to take over Christmas. Okay, Tim. Uh, 1984, Tim Burton gets fired from Disney, not because he was bad at his job, just because he was so weird. He was so odd. They didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know where to put him. Yeah, I mean, he he is a round peg in square holes over at Disney. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And and really the antithesis of everything that they are that they stand for. And really in, in the 1980s, Disney and particularly Disney animation is bankrupt. They are on the verge of, you know, it's funny, we think of Disney animation now as this powerhouse, even without Pixar, but then when you add the Pixar connection to it, the, the idea of Disney animation, the, the house of the mouse, you know, the house of the mouse that brought us Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Cinderella and Snow White, and then in the 90s brought us Little Mermaid and Lion King and uh, Aladdin, uh, you know, in the 80s, uh, in the late 70s into the 80s, they had nothing. They were, it was just failure after failure. It was in a bad state of, it was in a bad state of affairs. On top of it, they, they just didn't know what to do with this bizarre guy. So they fire him in 1984, but don't feel bad for Tim Burton because then he goes on to make Pee Wee's Big Adventure. He goes on to make Edward Scissorhands. He goes on to make Beetlejuice. These are some of my very favorite films. That that's this is his director's run. It's it's Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I'm doing this from from my memory, so if I get it wrong, you know, don't kill me if I get the order wrong. But it's Pee Wee's Big Adventure, then it's Beetlejuice, then it's Edward Scissorhands, then it's Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman, 1989. That's a hell of a run. I think so, and I think all amazing movies with like such just again visual, visual, visual. You just want to like just sit there and like eat it up, you know. And and you take Edward Scissorhands and you take Batman. And both of those movies set during Christmas time. It's, it's 1990 now. Tim Burton still has this idea for Jack Skellington floating around his head, still wants to make the movie, except for he learns Disney still owns the film rights to it because they were entertaining making it back in the early 80s when he brought the idea to them. So Disney still owns the rights to this. He goes to Disney and he says, sell me back 
the rights to the characters and the story and the movie. I, I want to do something with it. Except for now, he's not weird animator Tim Burton. He's mega movie director, money in the bank franchise, you know, movie guy Tim Burton. So Disney says, well, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> you know, it was unusual and odd for 1984, but 1990, we're looking for weird. We're looking for unusual. Let's do this together. <laughs> so Tim Burton is like, okay. That's the start of production on it. The problem is Tim Burton is this mega director, Caroline, and he can't actually direct the movie himself. Why? Because he is in the middle of finishing directing Batman Returns, and he is starting pre-production on Ed Wood, which would be his next movie after uh, Nightmare Before Christmas comes out. He goes and he taps one of his old buddies from his Disney time, Henry Selleck. Henry Selleck is the guy who actually directs this movie, He's the one who actually really ushers it in and shepherds it and really helps bring it to life in the way that Tim Burton is always given credit for. But in reality, Tim Burton, very little to do with the production of this movie, which is crazy, because if you asked anyone on the street, I mean, Tim Burton's name is in the title. Disney, when Disney rebranded it as a touchstone movie, they added Tim Burton's in front of it because they were banking for a wider audience. Because they weren't going to market it towards kids, now they wanted to market it towards families and adults. So now they added Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas when it becomes a And by that point, Tim Burton had like a a brand unto himself. For sure. You know, he was a walking brand. If you you knew Tim Burton's name, you knew the look of this movie. For sure. For sure. So, So Henry Selleck is given the task of, and this is his quote, it's as though Tim Burton laid the egg and I sat on it and hatched it. He wasn't involved in the hands-on way, but it, but his hand is in it. It was my job to make this look like a quote-unquote Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my own films. When, when pressed on Burton's involvement, Selleck goes on to say, I don't want to take away from anything from Tim, but he was not in San Francisco, which is where they made the film, uh, when we made it. He came up five times over the two years and spent no more than eight or ten days in total on production. Mm-hmm. This is not a Tim Burton movie. This is a Tim Burton idea because it's his poem. It's his characters. It's his story. It's his baby. Selleck really did the, the nurturing along. He actually grew up this baby. Though he wasn't involved himself, uh, it was a story. It was his characters. It was based on his poem. He's also the one who brings in Rick Heinrichs, who's the one who does the actual character sculpting and modeling. The actual Jack Skellington that we know, the Sally that we know, uh, Oogie Boogie, San, you know, Santa Claus, everyone, th- that's modeled by Rick Heinrichs. So he's responsible for that. And he's the one who's responsible for bringing in Danny Elfman, who is his you know longtime musical collaborator. He worked on Edward Scissorhands. He worked on Beetlejuice juice he will go on the, him and burton go on to make 16 movies together in total that's so impressive but they're such an amazing team they understand each other like two people have never understood each other <laughs> I, mean, I mean maybe maybe john williams and steven spielberg you can say uh have that kind of uh that kind of mesh but i think burton and elfman are probably the two most like-minded people there are because they're both such oddities they're both such outsiders and and i think that's the thing Uh, And it's funny when you talk about your kids, how they see things from a different point of view. I think that's one of the reasons that people like this movie. People who see things from a different point of view pick up on that outsider vibe that's in the DNA of this movie. Yeah, that the outside the mainstream is a huge actual pull for this one. Like, like, so you're kind of done with everything just looking the same way or you're done with the same kind of songs and the same visuals. Come check out this one because finally you get something different. 
for sure. I mean, in, in the same way, Bad Santa is, which is what we covered last week. Bad Santa was the Christmas movie for the Grinches and the pessimists adults. This is the movie for people who look at the world a little bit differently and, and maybe don't get into the holiday in the same way. But but for kids and for adults. Don't you know people who like Halloween is like them, like 365? Yes, I totally know those people. A lot of people. It's just part of their persona. It's just how they feel. Every day when they wake up, they basically pick out their costume, you know, and and it's not necessarily, you know, of course, it's not something you buy at like Target, but it's like just they put on their little persona, their look. And, you know, there's a lot of people like this. I, I think that they were right to click into this, especially when you're Disney. There's a lot of people who are drawn to Disney, especially as adults, who still have that wanting to kind of like dress up and kind of want to have that that costumey live in another world kind of feel to them that this appeals to this is fantasy at that at, at that same level I, uh, listen, listen people all you have to do is go to disney or disneyland during halloween time and attend one of the mickey's not so scary halloween parties i want to go so bad now now that i found out that they change over the haunted mansion to nightmare before christmas i, I don't think they do that in so disney world though i think they do that at the disney i read that they doesn't do it in the disneyland and they do it in uh tokyo disney i don't well, think they do I it in disney to world go now <laughs> at that time of year but you tend that the halloween party at disney is one of the most popular even maybe more so than their christmas theme time of the year and it's the time for the jack skellingtons of the world to rise up and unite and they are everywhere they are everywhere in force this movie has taken on such cultural importance for kids and for adults it's because you're right the the kids who liked halloween who loved halloween who grew up continue to still love halloween this is a movie for them and it's really a bridging of the two holidays it it is as much a celebration of halloween as a christmas movie we are covering this as a christmas movie on the christmas movie podcast but we could include this among the greatest of the halloween movies and i think it would still be okay to do I think so, because I think part of the things we were tapping into that a good Christmas movie has in it is that that idea of that miracle, that something that happens that you can't quite explain. And that that's fantasy unto itself, that idea that something there could be this world that exists where different holidays live. And, and that alone already you kind of get into a Christmas holiday kind of frame of mind because it's like things happen that you don't expect. Are you saying maybe that just because you cannot see it does not mean you cannot believe it? I I am. Just because I cannot see it doesn't mean I can't believe it. No one says it better than Jack. Jack gets it. <laughs> Jack, Jack totally gets it. Uh, before we get into the cast, it, it, because it's so interesting, because it's so troubled, and it's so outsidery, I just want to finish the the actual production team that's involved here because there's so many people and there's so much tension actually, really behind the scenes in the making of this movie. For as beloved a movie as this is, this was a movie. Even uh, take Elfman and uh, Elfman and Burton, they actually. Uh, lock horns during the production of this movie they actually have created differences in this movie burton who's barely involved in the actual production so much so that he doesn't have elfman do ed wood he excludes him he cuts him out of his next movie because he's mad at him this movie is filled with tension and and clashing over credit and it all stems from that idea that everyone thinks that this is a tim burton movie and yes he's a producer on it and it's based on his idea, but this is not a Tim Burton movie. This is a Henry 
Selleck movie. Henry Selleck, who would go on to become kind of the king of stop motion animation, including James and the Giant Peach, which is his next movie that he releases three years after this. I mean, the guy, it becomes synonymous if you want to do modern stop motion animation um, because he's got the patience among all to deal with the lengthy animation process. And I appreciate him because there is something to be said for still directing an animated movie. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is, is the composition of his shots are complicated and sophisticated and, and so well thought out. I mean, that doesn't happen in most kids' animation. Most of the time you're getting, you know, just straight on. Even if it's good animation, it's still not very imaginative in the way that they're shooting it. You know, there are different angles just aren't there and this one you're floating all over you're looking up you're looking down you're you're coming from over the top of things it's just it's so fluid and natural i just love it at the peak of the two years that they spent uh, it was over it was about two and a half years that they spent animating this movie there were over 120 animators using 20 different sound stages sound stages again not drawing boards these were not people in in a in a office drawing on their computers or on sketch pads they were using actual sound stages of what the models and the, they produced over 227 different puppets were used in this movie to represent all of the different characters. 109,440 frames of animation were used to make this movie. That's 12 separate mo- that's 12 separate movements per second of film. That's so for people who don't for people for people who don't understand how stop motion animation works is you set up your scene. Uh, let's just say Jack facing Sally, right? They're looking at each other. You take you set up that whole shot. You take a click, right? You click. You take a shot, a frame. You go. You slightly move their face slightly, or you slightly change their expression. You pull out. You get everyone off the stage. You take a click. You go back in. You have to move their face again a little, little bit. Then you take a click over and over again. You have to do that 12 different times just to get one second of animation. There's a reason why this movie is just over an hour. It's like an hour, 18 minutes. That alone took two and a half years to do because of this process. It's arduous. I think it's also why I appreciate the movie, the the dedication to the craft, yeah. the, the absolute just like blood, sweat and tears that gets poured into stop motion. It's fascinating, and it's it's just such dedication to the work. They had over 400 different heads for Jack Skellington alone to represent every possible facial emotion and expression. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought we had 400 different <laughs> expressions. Sally, Sally has di- 10 different types of faces, and each one of those faces had 11 different expressions. They couldn't use different heads for her the same way they did for Jack because of her hair. They, they wanted to keep a lot of continuity with her hair. So her face was basically it was always her same face, but they would like like kind of Mr. Potato Head like expressions onto her. Mm. Um, yeah. So, again, think about that. And, and you have to do that so many different times to get every little bit of motion. And this movie doesn't feel janky. It You know, our eye is used to 24 frames per second. But that's of like movie speed or computer drawn animation or hand drawn animation. But going in and clicking it, backing out, resetting the set, doing it again all that time. It's so painstaking. It's so painstaking. So painstaking. So Tim Burton writes this poem in 1982. 
uh, he hires Michael McDowell, who had worked with Burton on Beetlejuice. He had they had collaborated on the screenplay for Beetlejuice. He hires Michael McDowell to do the adaptation of the poem into a screenplay. Now, here's the problem. The screenplay, the script is taking forever. McDowell can't get it done. So among other things, Burton is like, you know what? We're going to make this a musical. There's going to be a lot of songs. So he goes to Danny Elfman, who Danny Elfman had done, like I said, Edward Edward Scissorhands. He had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure and he had done Beetlejuice uh, with Burton. And Danny Elfman was, Danny Elfman's gone on record and said, the writing the songs for Nightmare, The Nightmare Before Christmas, easiest job I've ever had. I am Jack Skellington. I feel exactly like he did. Uh, because uh, Danny Elfman had been the lead singer of the 80s band Oingo Boingo. I think that's so wild and something I never realized. It, it is. It's absolutely wild. And the connection to Jack Skellington is so strong because he felt at a point, because Oingo Boingo had a real peak of popularity in like the mid 80s, and he felt like he had become the king of his own little Halloween town as the front man for Oingo Boingo, but became restless with it and, and didn't want to do that anymore. And, and in a lot of ways, he credits Tim coming and and asking him to begin scoring films for Pee Wee's is the first one, and then and then and, and then launching this new career where he's now a a film scorer. He he's a, he's a John Williams, you know, uh, all of a sudden, and and it it gave him an outlet to do something different because he was getting so restless in this world that he had created, which is a real Jack Skellington vibe. He had become so attached to the roles, Caroline. That's why he wants to. That's why he wanted to play Jack Skellington in the movie, and he is actually the singing voice for Jack Skellington. He had become so attached to this character, not just writing the music, but voicing him for the demo tracks that he 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 couldn't fathom stepping away uh, from it. The music is so beautiful and haunting. There's something about it. I listened to the soundtrack so many times. I had the DVD, the DVD. I had the CD of it. I can remember playing it over and over and over again. They are all so catchy. And it's interesting because it's rare when you have a movie where the visuals and the music are equally stunning you know normally one outshines the other Mm -hmm. but i feel like in this one you can listen to the soundtrack or if you were just looking like you said a coffee table book of the still pictures they are both so just captivating that when you put them together it's it's just wow i would go so far as to say this movie wouldn't have the cult popularity that it that developed and now mainstream popularity that it has if it didn't have both the look and the music. I think if this movie just had Elfman's songs and and looked like garbage animation, or if it had the beautiful animation but had garbage music or no music, right. I don't think it would have the same popularity. I think it's the I think it's the lightning in a bottle effect of both of those things hitting. Think about Jack going through Christmas Town the first time. If he's not singing, what's this? That scene doesn't hit you as well. The 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 right. joyful curiosity, the 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 feeling of him uh, having happiness g- grow inside him and not understanding what that feeling is. All of that you need it, it, that comes across in a song. If that wasn't there, you wouldn't get that same emotion. You wouldn't have that same experience with him, be alone with the ride with him like you are if it was just relying on the animation alone. I also feel like that the music brings in even more of the Christmas feel because a lot of what we think about when we're thinking about Christmas movies includes Christmas songs. And even though these are not traditional Christmas songs, having it be more of a musical already kind of pulls it out of Halloween because I don't think of Halloween as a song singing 
holiday. So it's like it, it helps kind of bridge the gap. You're right. I mean, other than what the uh, Monster Mash, I, I'm, I'm coming up I mean, blank. Really, it's hard. I every year I end up playing this like YouTube one hour compilation of like spooky sounds. <laughs> that's yeah. what we end up playing Ooh. because there's not really anything that great. But right. that's the thing is like when you have a skeleton in a musical, you're already like flipping everything on its head. And and when you look at the songs in this, none of these songs are particularly Christmassy. But oh, no. but it you need the songs that really you're right to to make it feel again to help sell the idea of this being a Christmas movie. Uh, going back to the the production, McDowell, who is hired to write this, he is fired eventually because the the stated the official reason given was created differences with Tim Burton. The real reason is that he has a drug problem behind the scenes. He has a lot of personal issues going on. He actually eventually I think develops AIDS actually and passes away in 1999. When looking back at it, I think the delays he just couldn't produce it because of his personal demons that were going on in his life. I mean, Danny Elfman's music and lyrics take up 90% of the story. But they need someone to write the rest of the screenplay. They need an actual script for this thing. Danny Elfman's girlfriend that he's living with at the time, her name is Caroline Thompson. Luckily, she had worked with Burton before. She had written the screenplay for Edward Scissorhands. So it's a very all-in-the-family kind of thing. So they turn to Caroline Thompson. They hire her. She writes the screenplay. Selleck being the guy he is and Burton being the person he is and Elfman having written so much of the story through the songs, they end up rewriting a bunch of what Caroline Thompson actually provided. So there's very little dialogue of hers that actually lasted in the movie, but her biggest contribution by everyone's account, and there's a great documentary about this movie um, you can get on Netflix. She's in it, and she talks about how she's actually responsible for making Sally the character that she is. Sally's original storyboard uh, art, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It, it, it was real dominatrix-looking. Like, she had a Madonna-like cone bra like a like a look about her and she had no personality she had no law she had no line she had no personality she wasn't fleshed out at all because remember she wasn't a character from the poem so she's Mm -hmm. one of the new characters that's developed whole cloth it's caroline thompson that makes her the character the the kind of heart and soul of the movie at the end of the day all the things falling into place all of these outsiders all of these oddballs coming together in san francisco not in disney not in california you know uh, disney actually hires a production manager and sends the and sends her her name's Kathleen Gavin sends her up to San Francisco to keep an eye on these guys because they're fronting the money they're fronting 18 million dollars for them to make this movie and they're like but they're not even working here like we can't keep an eye on them so they actually hire uh, uh, Kathleen and they send her to work at they called it Skellington Productions the little office that they set up to make the movie uh, just just, to, just so they had an idea of what was going on with their cash <laughs> it was crazy it was crazy because there was no one minding the story Burton's not there. He's he's off directing Batman Returns. So there was really no one, no Disney people, no one really accountable for what was going on. They were just kind of working in a vacuum until Kathleen Gavin shows up. So really wild production about going about this movie. It's such a labor of love. Uh, 120 people, two and a half years every day working to bring this thing to life. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. But I feel like you can feel it in the movie. Like there's something about it that feels like it has all this TLC in it that it it gives it a heart. And and I think that it's all about all these different people really pouring all of their energy into it. You know, you feel it. It comes right off the screen. 
there's something very Grinch-like about Jack. This idea that he becomes so obsessed with Christmas that he plans to essentially steal it from Santa Claus, but for a different motivation that Grinch has, right? The Grinch doesn't like Christmas, so he wants to ruin it for the the kids of Whoville, the people of Whoville. Jack wants to steal Christmas because he wants to be happy. He does it first. He wants to take Christmas for himself for a selfish reason, because he can. He becomes obsessed with it, and he wants to possess the thing, kind of like Golem with the ring and like Lord of the Rings, you know? Right, right. But there is something very Grinch-like about his 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 kind of maniacal plan to put a coup d'état on Christmas. No, is, is there a connection there, or am I making that up out of out of uh, whole cloth? No, I mean definitely not. I mean I think down to the little dog and and you know him going around and collecting the the different elements of Christmas around Christmas Town. I think that that's exactly we have probably the same scenes exactly in Grinch, even down to his little dog Sam. So I think that yeah, I, there's there's tons going on there that are similar. But I am hearing other things. I hear Charlie Brown and and that what is Christmas? How can I explain Christmas? How I can love I that aspect of it. Make people understand what. What Christmas is because, you know, it, it is really hard. And we have tried, we're now in our 11th week of trying to wrap our brains around what is Christmas because we know from watching the movies, it's more than just the presents, it's more than Santa Claus. It, it is even, uh, you know, for some people, there's a religious aspect we're learning. There's always an element of belief and wanting to make something exist that doesn't normally exist, which I think is part of this Jack Skellington part that that little nugget sticks with him but I think that there's that loneliness too there's that sadness that depression of the holidays that Jack also embodies and and I I think that that's fascinating because it's just coming out in a different way he's not that one curly head uh you know early receding balding Charlie Brown face looking at you but in a way he is because he's like this same bald-headed little face being like I don't even know (laughs) you know it's like it's a very good grief it's very good grief. And the I think my favorite sequence of the movie is Jack, after he gets to experience Christmas Town, returns to Halloween Town and he tries to explain Christmas to everyone and and everyone yes. because they're because they worship Jack. They're like, we're doing it. The two faced mayor is, you know, we're doing Christmas. That's what we're doing now. And he's like, no, no, no. He like, you don't you don't get it. You know, but but then he ends it by describing Santa Claus as this fearsome king, a vulture in the sky. Well, because, right, like, because he's trying to meet the people where they are, right? Because they keep trying to put it into their framework. They can't think about it in a different way, which is fascinating. Because if you just take that alone, of course, that is what Tim Burton does with all of his movies. He's trying to have the audience get outside of your own framework of what you thought this story needed to look like or sound like and try to see it from a different way. And and ultimately, Jack only goes that way with old Sandy Claus because he just gets so fed up with trying to get people to understand it in a different way. And he's like, you know what? Fine. If you can only think of it as this fearsome thing, because that's the only way you can look at it, I'm going to come where you are and I'm going to kind of just go with it, which is what I think this movie's like, right? Like, right. I want to make a Christmas movie, but I got to do it my way. 
it's not just trying to come up with a way to explain it to the people of Halloween Town. It's for he's trying to understand it himself, right? Because that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing of just because I cannot see it doesn't mean I cannot believe it. Uh, he doesn't understand what the feeling is inside of him that felt so happy and rapturous and joyful when he was in Christmas Town. There, there are so many lines in there that you and I have talked about that 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 runs through all of these Christmas movies. The idea of being filled up with this feeling of joy and happiness that you don't know where it comes from, but it fills you up. Jack is singing about that in What's This? He's singing about that every time he begins to obsess about Christmas. When he begins, when he starts doing his science experiments, right? And he's and he's trying yeah. to he's trying to come Create up with a logical Christmas. way, right? He's trying yeah. to a, a logical way to explain Christmas, buddy. That's never going to work because it's a feeling. It is something you said it already. You already understood it. And that's what he eventually comes down to. Then maybe I'm making this too difficult. You know, maybe Christmas isn't actually as tricky as I think it is. In a way, he's absolutely right because it's a feeling. It is something that is not concrete. It's not a present. It's not uh, a stocking. It's not a tree. Those are all just symbols. They're just they're just symptoms of the feeling. They're just symptoms of what Christmas is. And I love that he wrestles with that. I feel like I even have moments where I know I, you wouldn't have thought that I would ever reference back to Bad Santa. But I think that that same wrestling with trying to connect and trying to be a part of the holiday, but sort of like you have like you're in your own way. You have your own life and your own way of doing things. Now, granted, you know, Bad Santa's obviously we would be like, that's a very unhealthy life and blah, blah, blah. And so it doesn't jive with Christmas. But there's like parts to it that he wants. He wants to have that connection with other people. He wants the feeling, but it's like he can't access it. And that's Jack. Totally. Like, how do I get it? How can I possess Christmas? Right. And that's that's where he runs into trouble, right, where he tries to make it about the tangible things because he is trying to possess it because he thinks that's going to equal the feeling that he had in his time in, in Christmas Town, And it's not a tangible thing. You know, there's so many good moments about that when he's going through like the pile of books and there's like the Rudolph book and, and you know, uh, all of that I love because when if you look at if you listen to Burton talk about what inspired the poem you know, he was thinking about the Rudolph the Red Nose reindeer stop motion special from the 60s, you know, from 1964, when he was inspired to write this story of this Halloween character trying to identify what exactly is Christmas and how can I create that in my life and how can I bring that into this world? Well, and you love Charlie Brown so much. I mean, don't you see that that same exploration, that same like walking around the, the Christmas tree lot trying to figure it out is this is so much the same as him sitting there with his little beakers trying to create different things like it's like I can't quite put my finger on it. But at the same time, Christmas is so simple. And then at the same time, it's one of the most complex things that we have because there's just all these parts to it that you can't control and you can't manipulate and you can't just like conjure up. It, it, you just have to kind of like let it be in many ways. It is and that, you know, that is what I was trying to say inelegantly before is when he hits upon the idea that maybe Christmas isn't doesn't require science experiments. Maybe it's not as hard as I'm making it. In some ways, that's absolutely right, because it's just this feeling. It's this intangible feeling that you can't actually create in a lab. It's it's not like an, an alchemist trying to, you know, make gold out of tin or aluminum or whatever to get the whole atmosphere correctly. So that feeling can thrive is extremely difficult because it is so many factors 
that go into it. It it really requires a whole infrastructure to exist in order for that feeling to thrive inside you. You know, once you have the setup, then you can have the feeling comes easy. You know, I, I again, I'm just going back to when he's explaining about the present and, you know, he eventually gives out a present with a severed head in it. And, you know, the, the police are taking calls. This was really great for me uh, at the end when the police are getting the calls about the toys attacking. And then we're getting the news reports of someone's out there mocking, uh, making a mockery of mocking and mangling. That's the phrase mocking and mangling the joyous holiday. That's not what Jack meant to do. Jack meant to recreate it. He just wanted to thrill. He wanted the high of being Santa Claus. You know, he wanted the high of being the one who brought that feeling to people. And he misses it so badly that it comes off as him actually making fun of it, which is sad, you know? Don't you see that happening where people, you know, they they try so hard to do it in that traditional framework that, you know, you can look at the way that someone's like decorated something or they're doing something and you very much feel like they're going through the motions. Like, that's not the way you would actually want to celebrate it, is it? But you're doing it because that's the way you think you have to do it. And so for Jack, it's like he's trying to do it right. But like his actual personality and where he comes from, his history, his past are like seeping in and creating these inappropriate presents because he, he doesn't have the structure. He doesn't have the the life experience to be able to do it in the traditional way that the human world's used to. I feel like we see that at the holidays and that's a, another reason why people struggle and have depression and 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 feel lonely because they can't connect with other people on that same level at that same spot because of their own life experiences or lack of. I mean, to the, to the point that he's so delusional that when the military starts shooting at him, you know, he turns to zero <laughs> and he says, you know, they're celebrating us and how a good job we're doing. You know, it's only when they actually start hitting the, the sleigh when he realizes that they're actually shooting at him and it all his illusion, you know, the scales all kind of fall from his eyes there. And again, another really heartbreaking scene when he realizes that he's just, mucked it all up in some ways i have in my notes here does jack actually learn his lesson because yeah he realizes he has to go free santa so that maybe the real santa claus can rescue christmas he understands that's an important thing and he has he has messed it right up for for (laughs) millions of people from that point of view i think he gets it but he rises like a phoenix from his own ashes, reignited about making Halloween. You know, he, his his love of Halloween is kind of reinvigorated at the end. But I don't know that if he ever really learned his lesson about what went wrong with the Christmas plan. I think that maybe I'm going to say that the lesson is more like know who you are and do you and stop trying so hard to to celebrate life in general and or just how you experience things in the same way as everyone else. Think about the the movie going audience member. If they said to their family, not knowing anything about this, let's go see the Christmas movie that's out right now, right? And they go see Nightmare Before Christmas. They could leave feeling exactly like Jack Skeleton. They could feel like, boy, I mucked this up. I thought I was taking them to go see Rudolph or Charlie Brown or whatever. And instead, that was such a twisted version of what I thought Christmas was going to be like, I've messed this all up. It shouldn't feel that way, but it's like there's that sense of just be who you are, enjoy what it is for what it is, and stop trying to make it into something else. And that's where I feel like he kind of settles in at the end. Like, I am the pumpkin king. I can do this, and this is what I do very well. Stealing other people's 
joy, essentially, and trying to make it my own is never going to work. I have to find my own way. And and I think that that's true. When I hear people who say, oh, my family goes to the Bahamas for Christmas and that's how we celebrate Christmas. Or I've gone to places where I was always amazed that, gosh, there's a, there's a, I, we won't do any advertising for them, but there's a, there's a big dog <laughs> type resort, right? Where uh, you could actually stay there over Christmas and order a Christmas tree to your room. And they put presents under the tree and they do all this kind of stuff. And I thought, that is so fascinating. And a little part of my heart was like, I kind of really want to do that. Like, that sounds like really fun. But then I'm like, I can't because we have to do it in this traditional way with extended family and all this complicated stuff, these traditions that we have. But at the same time, it's like, just do you and and you can have Christmas too, just like Jack can, but it just has to be in the way that is right for you. Uh, Caroline, I, I almost feel like you're daring me to give a spiel on the importance of <laughs> rites and rituals and, 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 and how that's in a, that's a necessary ingredient in, in order to make things you secret. You can, if only there's a caveat <laughs> in your speech that says that you can, you can explain to people why that's important. But I'm going to add before you even say it, it's very important that you step back and decide if these rites and rituals work for you to have the right outcome that you want. Because I think that there's trappings that we all get stuck in of doing someone else's rites and rituals. And that's where things get messy. Right. And, and, and I'm not going to go into a spiel about rites and rituals because this is <laughs> because this is not the right setting to do that is. But 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 Christmas and, and you just said it. But Christmas more than any other holiday is a, maybe maybe Thanksgiving is marked by family tradition in a way that other holidays I think you grow up as a kid, and if you have, uh, you know, the the general experience that many kids have, you have a family of some sort. You grow up, you experience holidays as a kid. You become a teenager. You become a young adult. You become a full fledged adult. You have your own family. I, I think Christmas, more than any other holiday, you, you will celebrate as an adult the way you celebrate it as a kid meaning that the the installation of the tradition is so imprinted on you that you will feel either a warmth or a prison sentence <laughs> one way or another but you're going to probably celebrate it similarly as an adult with your family and your kids as it was celebrated with you more than any other holiday you know well and i feel like that that's especially like why people can also feel really down because there's not you can't always like jack shows you you can't concoct that if your parents are deceased or if you truly don't have any extended family or you know or maybe you're away like this year with covid you're away from them you can't create the same things out of thin air if they're just not there anymore. And so there's some parts to this that that can bring a real sadness around Christmas because you can't get back that childhood experience. Let's talk about Sally because we spend a lot of time talking about Jack, but I and I and I said this at the beginning, I I purport that Sally is the true heart of this movie. She is the rock. She is the stereotypical woman behind the man that 
you know, al- allows him to mess up and then still accepts him and his apology when it all crashes and blows up in his face. Even though she tried to warn him, she tried. Uh, she had a premonition. She had it. She had it in her bones. bones, man. She She's had it bones. in her bones. Mm-hmm. I, I, I resonated so much w- w- mm-hmm. with me because of you, because you are someone who believes in intuition. And mm-hmm. and when she goes to him and tries to talk him down and he doesn't listen, I was like, Caroline is not going to be happy with that. <laughs> She's like, how does Sally how does Sally hit you as a as a heroine and as as the love interest and also as the friend? I think that she is a perfect best friend in the in the from the standpoint that she just wants him to realize his own talents, his own strengths and play to them. That you don't need to be someone else. You don't need to act like someone else. You just need to be who you are and I love you for who you are. You're you have worth. You don't need to become these other things. And I think that that's something that everyone needs to hear. But I think if you're going to go in this particular thing, I think that that's something that oftentimes women bring to the table where they say, like, I'm, if it's the woman behind the man, it's because she's whispering in her his ear saying, you are worth it. You are strong. You can do this. And, and you have inherent worth. You don't have to become someone else. And I think all of those things is why she's like watching from afar. Now, Sally's actual story of being created by the the mad scientist, if you will. The weird duck man scientist, Finkelstein, not a fan. I mean, it, it is a little bit difficult. And I think that it is something that I tend to gloss over when it comes to this, because she's always having to trick, you know, the scientists to get out. She's basically being held hostage and everyone knows it and is fine with it. Like, it's all very odd when you really look at it. But I'm sure there's some symbolism there. I'm sure there's something that we could dig out of that. But but when it just comes down to her relationship with Jack, I, I love it. I think that it's right on. I really am choosing to ignore the evil scientist makes Sally part the the locking her away, the keeping her chained up, the fact that he goes and crafts himself a new woman to replace her. And, and honestly, I'm ignoring a lot of the oogie boogie parts, too, because I think both of those. Yes, I, I know movies need a bad guy. Every, every movie needs a wet bandit, right? They're troubling and not something I want to delve too, too deep into, because I think I think especially 30 years on, both of those are troubling depictions that are best left not really super dwelled on. I will go with you, especially in context of our podcast. Yes. Um, But Sally, though, for me, is wonderful because she sees Jack and she is a stalwart. She never loses faith in him. Um, You know, she she is always there, even at the end when she's on the hill, you know, waiting and Jack comes to her again. She's just there. She knows that he'll come around and she is just she's the very best of friends because she doesn't judge him. She could throw it in his face that I warned you, but she doesn't. And she just accepts him for the buffoon that he is. Well, and I'm going to add a little extra, though, because you said she knows he'll come around. She doesn't know he's going to come around. That's not her song. Her song is maybe we're meant to be together. But maybe we're not. And and maybe I, and I'll wait here and I'll be your friend. And maybe it's not going to go further than that. I don't really know. But I can still be your friend. Yes, I guess that's my point. Like she, she's bringing an unconditional friendship to the table. And, and ladies and gentlemen, kids, if you find someone who brings you unconditional friendship, love or not involved, someone who is just a ride or die friend, no matter what boneheaded things you can do and just 
it doesn't require anything other than just just being a friend get yourself a sally there is a scene where jack is dressed up as santa claus and she says to him you don't look anything like yourself and, mm-hmm. and and he's like, yeah, isn't it great? He's just mm-hmm. not understanding her words at all. She's she's playing 3D chess, and he is barely playing checkers in that scene. Well, of you know that feeling, though, right? Like, there certainly we've all gone through parts of our lives where we're think we're we're restless. We want to grow. We want to change. We look at you know the grass is greener elsewhere. The the grass is greener down one of the other tree holes. Right? I need to open up one of these other holiday doors, and somehow that is going to be where I'm going to find my bliss ultimately what i think majority of stories are is you go through some sort of trial and you come back and you realize that being authentic to yourself being true to you playing to your strengths that's where it's at that's where you were your happiest not pretending to be someone else not trying to live in another holiday land but just being the best king you can be I think their their end song together uh, is so good. It, it's this one. It's this, it's this line specifically right here. Their voices are so sweet. Like that makes like a lump in my throat because they're it's so innocent on this backdrop of like, you know, like we said, the black and the gray and the sharp teeth and the, all this like, you know, twisty, turny looking scenery. But then it's just like the most innocent. It could be Sound of Music, you know, Rolf and Liesel dancing around like it could be beautiful. And somehow it is still beautiful, even though it's not traditionally beautiful no but i love i mean talk about iconic scenes the the full the christmas full moon and then they're on top of what i'm pretty sure is oogie boogie's head uh, i think <laughs> if you look at that cliffside i'm pretty sure that's actually the top of oogie boogie's head uh you that's know and, and they funny. grab each other's hand but the idea of it's simply meant to be the idea of fate it, it, it does double back. Yes, it, it is being applied here literally to their love story and their friendship. But it could be applied, though, to what we were talking about, about understanding who you are, that that the freedom of life, the, the ability to actually be happy in life starts with understanding who you are. The idea of it's simply meant to be is part of that. Like you can fight who you are. And you can go through the struggles and the unhappiness of who you are and fight against that and kick and gnash. But you are who you are. And the quicker you accept that, I think, the faster you can get on to trying to be as happy as you can be in that life. And I'm going to piggyback on you and say the faster that you can recognize your strengths and the things that you love about yourself, because I think that there's like, I I don't give like a blanket acceptance, like, okay, you're, you, you know, you've, you're this person, the end. I think you can grow and change, but I think that you need to grow and change using the talents and strengths that you have and, and not sort of being like, well, I've always been argumentative. So I'm just argumentative. That's just the way I am. It's like, okay, so you're argumentative, find a cause to argue, to argue for a good thing, you know, like take your strengths and turn it into, you know, something that is bigger and better than you are now. That is where I feel like this, this entire movie just like, I th- I can see it in my own kids. I mean, my son chose this as his birthday movie. Even during this quarantine time, we were able to rent out the movie theater and he could pick any movie he wanted off this huge list. And this is the movie he picked. He's been Jack Skellington for, for 
Halloween. I think there's something to Jack that is like this. It's okay to question. It's okay to look at other ways of doing things. And it's also okay to come back to yourself and then just be your best you. That's a really powerful message and is does fit within Christmas because there's something about Christmas having this like hopefulness and this perpetual hope. Yeah, that you're allowed to have in yourself too. It doesn't have to just be in things outside of you. You can have hope and belief in you. How great would it have been if Catherine O'Hara as Sally turns and gives the Kevin's mom speech from Home Alone <laughs> and talks about the season of perpetual hope? I thought you were going to say if she tried to wipe Jack! Skeleton! <laughs> <laughs> So, so how wild that she's the she is the speaking and singing voice here and such a sweet, lovely voice here. I, I don't think of Catherine O'Hara as someone who sings, but it's such a lovely voice here. And it's Danny Elfman doing the singing. But do you know who they got to do the speaking voice? Because they filmed the whole movie or they recorded the whole movie. And it was determined by everyone who has a decision that Danny, while a, an amazing singer, and a, a wonderful singing voice, a little stiff in the in, in the speaking roles. So do you know who they get to do his speaking roles? I don't. Tell me. Chris Sarandon, Prince Humperdinck himself from Princess Bride. Isn't that so funny? It's so wild. Yeah, and they uh, they hire him as the speaking voice primarily because his tone matches Danny Elfman's singing voice. So if you didn't otherwise know, it's believable that the guy speaking is the same guy singing because they have a they have a similar tone and pitch to their voice. So a little fun fact. Very tricky. Yeah. Before we get to the fast facts and then start wrapping up here, there is something that appears only on the soundtrack for this movie and and maybe only on the special edition soundtrack for this movie that I think is worth playing because I think it is nice bookends that you don't get in the movie. Okay, hit me with this. So Ed Ivory, who is the voice of Santa Claus, he is the narrator that they use at the beginning of the film. They wanted a bunch of different people, particularly they wanted Vincent Price to be the narrator of the film. Uh, sadly, by this point, his health had declined so much. They actually recorded lines with him, but his voice was so frail and weak, they couldn't use it. They actually had to scrap it and they had to recast. Uh, he actually passes away, I think, right before this movie comes out or right after this movie comes out. Very sad um, because, you know, Tim Burton and Vincent Price, they, they have a whole history together uh, going back to Edward Scissorhands. They use Ed Ivory to do the narration at the beginning, but on the soundtrack, they have Patrick Stewart who does the opening, but he does not only do the opening, he also does an epilogue that does not appear in the movie, which is wild. And it, it is it is an, is about a minute and a half. I'm going to play both of them here because I think I wish it was in the movie because Patrick Stewart has a gravitas to his voice, his Britishness. He is a really nice way to begin and end the movie and the story. So I'm going to play these for you now. And I want to, I want to hear what you think, because I'm not sure if you've ever heard them before. was a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told began with the holiday worlds of old. Now you've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. For the holidays are the result of much fuss and hard work for the worlds that create them for us. Well, you see now, 
quite simply, that's all that they do. Making one unique holiday, especially for you. But once a calamity ever so great occurred when two holidays met by mistake. Now, that's a little bit longer than the version that appears in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. I think the opening of the movie narration ends with, if you've never wondered about the Christmas worlds of old, it's time you begin. I mean, I love that. Oh, I think it's, I think it's beautiful. I mean, I was totally entranced when you stopped it. I was like, wow. Right. Well, that, well, that's where it ends. That's the end of the track. Um, but, but here is the epilogue. If you ever wondered what happened to you, Jack Skellington? Well, hear it from Patrick Stewart doing Santa. Uh, and he goes to revisit old Jack a little bit later in his life. Finally, everything worked out just fine. Christmas was saved, though there wasn't much time. But after that night, things were never the same. Each holiday now knew the other one's name. And though that one Christmas things got out of hand, I'm still rather fond of that skeleton man. So, many years later, I thought I'd drop in. And there was old Jack still looking quite thin, with four or five skeleton children at hand playing strange little tunes in their xylophone band. And I asked old Jack, Do you remember the night when the sky was so dark and the moon shone so bright? When a million small children pretending to sleep nearly didn't have Christmas at all, so to speak, and would, if you could, Turn that mighty clock back to that long, fateful night. Now, think carefully, Jack. Would you do the whole thing all over again? Knowing what you know now. Knowing what you knew then. And he smiled like the old pumpkin king that I knew. Then turned and asked softly of me. The old pumpkin king. Oh, the old pumpkin king. He'd do it all over again, given the chance. His Christmas is that magical, right? He doesn't, he would do it all over again. Listen, when the, when the snow starts to fall in Halloween Town and there's the, re, the, the short reprise of what's this as they all experience snow for the first time, mm-hmm. it, it, a wonderful scene. I really made me happy because I love the meshing of the, the meshing of the worlds, like the idea that the boundary was forever weakened between those two worlds of old. There is the mayor, and I love the idea of the two-faced mayor, right? The happy mayor, sad mayor, and oh, the, two-fa- yes. the two-faced politician. It's so, so so clever. So clever. I and love again. the way that it switches so quickly. Like, it'll just spin, and then it changes, and it changes again. Like, oh, yes, it is so good. In that scene, and watch it again, because it's it's fan- it's wonderful. It's sad-faced mayor, and he, ha- he sticks his tongue out, and he tastes the snowflake. He sticks his tongue out to catch a snowflake, and his head spins around to the happy mayor. And for me, I was like, yeah, I get that. That is so much wintertime and Christmas. I was born in I was born in a uh, in a blizzard. Uh, snow is a part of like my DNA. And, and and as I've gotten older, I don't like the wind and I tolerate the cold less well than I used to. But snow forever remains a favorite thing of mine. So I, I when he when he switches so fast to getting that 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 December snowflake on his tongue, oh, man, it made me happy. <laughs> I love it, Mike. Well, we have got to get into is this a Christmas movie? It is time, <sighs> man. So go ahead, you go first. I think it's a Christmas movie. 
because it is asking some of the things that we're that we find ourselves asking in these movies that are Christmas movies. I think it is asking what is Christmas about? What is the point of Christmas? What is the true spirit of Christmas? You know, there's a point or there's a part where where upset angry Santa says, "Haven't you ever heard of peace on earth and goodwill towards men?" and he's, you know, really snooty about it. And those are funny because those have been two of the things that we've used as a criteria for these Christmas movies. Movies that either celebrate the idea of peace on earth and goodwill towards men and family or or at least talk about them intrinsically and and jack repeatedly is lacking in both peace on earth and goodwill towards men but he is searching and and your analogy to charlie brown is really is really spot on whereas charlie is feeling like the commercialism of christmas feels wrong and so he's lost about as to what christmas is really about because that doesn't feel right to him Jack is searching because he's had this this hit of Christmas spirit imbued upon him, but doesn't know how to recapture it and doesn't know the recipe to recreate it in his life. And so this movie is him searching for that. It's searching for that intangible thing that doesn't have an easy answer. And so I think for that reason, it is a Christmas movie because it's someone searching for Christmas. I agree with you. I think it is a Christmas movie. I think that it holds on to this idea of hope and and belief and trying to find the elements of Christmas that are meaningful to you and to the people around you. I think that it encourages people to try to find their own traditions that match their family and, and their life. It could be different from how they always grew up in Halloween Town. Maybe they could try something new and maybe that would be okay and they could try it out. I love all of those things. I also love the coming together. We talked about this in a bunch of different movies now. Um, it's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, and there's all these just moments where people converge and try to help and try to make it right. And those moments that happen in this, the entire town trying to build those toys, I mean, it, it's so adorable because it's so heartfelt. They they want to do it right and they want to help this guy. You know, right. they want to help. They love their him George, so much. They want to help their George Bailey, who's over here struggling, who's having de- depression, who's having a, a loss of identity, and and he wants to find himself. He is George Bailey. He is trapped in in the life he's always been in, and he thinks if I go and do something else, well, maybe it will be better. If I wasn't here anymore in Halloween Town, if I was being Sandy Claus, things would be better, right? And he learns, no, you got to be you exactly where you are. That's where you're needed, and that's where everyone loves you. I mean, if that's not a Christmas message, I don't know what is. It's it's telling when the mayor seizes upon the idea to do Christmas before Jack's even finished his explanation. And he says, we're going to make that the most horrible Christmas ever. <laughs> and Jack is like, no, 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 no. Joyful. And the yes. mayor's like, what? Que pasa? What? <laughs> right, 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 right. All right. While we're thinking about our Jingle Ball ratings, Mike, we're going to throw out some fast facts, right? Yes, please. I love that there's a ton of great fast facts for this one. Okay, because I love the actual sculpting of it all, Zero's nose is actually a tiny glowing jack-o'-lantern. So adorable. So adorable and gives us a great Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer shout out. Disney refused to give them more than $18 million uh, for this movie. And if they were going to stick to an $18 $18 million budget, 
they were going to need to cut several things from this script, which is already a lean script at only uh, an hour and 17 minutes. Kathleen Gavin, who is the Disney hired insider, she goes uh, she goes down to Disney Studios. She plays the movie for them. They fall in love with it as they knew that they would. And she says, that movie costs $24 million. If you're going to make me do the movie for $18 million, if you want to make these guys do this for $18 million, then we're going to have to cut that scene that you loved and that scene that you loved and that scene. And she drops a big book of all the cuts they're going to have to make to the movie. They were like, just take the $6 million. Take the $6 million and give us the movie that we just saw. Some of the presents Jack delivers to kids are nods to Tim Burton films like The Snake Looks Like the Sandworm from Beetlejuice. Totally recognize it. And I love the shrunken head from the afterlife waiting room. And old... I love that, too. It made me, it made me sweet <laughs> with a little bit of joy. I know. I love that so much. Give me another fast fact. In the song, This is Halloween, the lyrics, Tender Lumplings Everywhere, that refers to Tender Lumplings, a song done by Oingo Boingo, of which Danny Elfman was the singer. <laughs> that is very funny yeah. at one point tim burton considered making this a tv special rather than a feature film what do you think about that do you think that would have done very well i mean i could see back in, in 1984 when he had the idea 82 84 yeah I, I i think i could see why he would want to do that because he was just thinking small but man what do you cut that's the Gath- kathleen gavin question all right what do you guys want to cut from this to make it a half hour special i i don't yeah. i mean you would, you would i don't want to lose- cut anything you would, you would i don't want to cut anything either <laughs> oh, here's a t- here's a troubling fast fact. Oogie, Oogie Boogie was originally written uh, to be the evil scientist in disguise, and he was going to be the motivation was going to be revealed that he is angry with Sally because she shuns him uh for jack and chooses jack over him which becomes very weird when you think about the fact that he's also the one who made sally like it was going to be a real scooby-doo ending where he where the evil scientist takes off his duck duck mask and reveals that he's oogie boogie tim burton was so incensed when they told him this ending he kicked a hole in the wall oh wow he put a hole in the wall they framed it super incestuous right i mean like evil scientist is like very much like her father figure and that was all still gonna stay stay so it was gonna be that then also like he was obsessed with her from a love interest angle there uh they were they were so impressed with the kicking of the wall they actually cut the plaster out and framed it with a wrote and marker over it tim burton kicked this hole (laughs) <laughs> i love that yeah. that's very very funny yeah another fast fact at the end of the movie there's a scene where they are skating on the ice and they're using a pumpkin as the puck mm-hmm. the original screenplay called for the instead of a pumpkin head it was actually a severed head done in the likeness of tim burton uh-huh. one of the animators said tim's not gonna like that you should change that and so they so selick the director he switched it to a pumpkin and that's what they went with years later he said i regret that fact because i think tim burton would have liked that actually and i regret not actually going and asking him having the courage to go and ask him if he'd like that you can go see that deleted scene actually on disney plus where the nightmare before christmas is streaming in their extras they have the deleted scene with tim burton's head that you could watch Super fun. I love that so much. All right, Mike, it's time for our Jingle Bell ratings. Are you ready? You go first. Oh, man, you made me go first last time. Hold on. I got to get my spreadsheet open. I got to get my spreadsheet open. <laughs> Get it open. 
Now, again, this is interesting, and this is going to affect my Jingle Bell Ring, because it's not a movie that I grew up with. This is not a movie that I watched as a kid. I didn't see it until getting ready for this podcast. I, I don't have the history with it, so I think my Jingle Bell Ring is going to be a little bit lower than other people's. But I'm going to give this an eight. Okay, talk to me. I, I think I think it's visually beautiful. I think it is. I think the music is wonderful. I, I think it's a really interesting movie. I think it's a really great movie for kids to see and and the themes of being yourself and it's okay to be a little bit different like you don't have to conform to what other people think are is normal i i like i like when movies have a message of normal is whatever you are not what someone else says it is and i think this movie is strong in that messaging i think the christmasness of this movie is less than we've seen in some other films Elf, Charlie Brown, uh, I think uh, Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life. I think all do the Christmas themes better, but I, I think there is Christmas here, and I think there are defenses for Christmas, um, and so I'm going to give it an 8. Okay, Mike. Well, you might be shocked, but I'm going to actually give this one an 8.5 because you might say, expect- Caroline, I thought you'd certainly be higher than that. Same. But within the context of this particular podcast i think there's other movies that capture the christmas spirit and have more of the christmas elements that we're looking for than this one and so that's why i had to like knock it down as a movie i give it a 10 i think that it has so many things that keep me coming back for more i've seen this movie a million times and i have i i've sung all these songs a million times and and the fact that it's still intrigues me it still pulls me back in i give it a 10 but when it comes to this podcast and i have to stack it against other movies that we're working on here i gotta give it an 8.5 i agree uh, wholeheartedly i think if we were doing a, a movie scale just a, a how is this as a movie i'm probably giving this somewhere between a 9 and a 9.5 i, I think i mean i, I think- have issues there's some issues i mean we could talk for a second like if santa claus could always just like blink out why didn't he just do that before? Why do you have to be saved at all? Like, that's how he ends. He just kind of is like, and like, just kind of blinks out and goes back to Christmas land. Okay, Santa, if you can always do that, what was all this for? There's some, you know, little plot moments where I'm like, okay, I don't know if that's sure. exactly how I would have done that. So that's the thing. Like, there's some moments where I pause, but, you yeah. know, I think it is a really great movie. And I, again, I think it's important that we're exploring these, let's take a Christmas movie, let's take the themes and let's, you know, turn the POVs. Let's Let's try to look at it from other people doing other things. And I think that's important. We did that with Happiest Season. We've done that now in a couple of different ways where we're like, what if you do it this way? What if you're home alone and you're trying to celebrate without your family? What are the different elements that you're missing or that you still need to make this a great movie? In a world where it's so hard to have an original idea, it seems, where where creativity is so bankrupt, the idea that this movie exists at all and and is such a unique thing that stands alone. There's no movie like this. There's no movie like this in the plot. There's no movie like this in in its execution. There's no movie that looks like this and sounds like this. That's the real magic of this movie for me. And I think that all works as a movie. And yeah, 
plot wise matters less to me. This is a feast for my eyes and my ears, and I am just mesmerized. The same way you were captivated by listening to Patrick Stewart like read to you just now. That's what this movie was listening and watching it. It was just I I didn't the, the plot mattered so much less than the feast for my senses that I was taking in. Um in in the same way, you know, like you when you when you were a kid and you read uh Where the Wild Things Are for the first time, you know, or or, or any of those what are the, the is it the Newcastle Metal books? That uh, give the the give the medals for the the books with the art the glossy pages art. It's the Newberry. Newberry, not Newcastle. Yeah, it's like the books that as kids watching that would receive the Newberry medal. They were so stunning to look at. Maybe you don't remember what the story is at all, but but you remember what the pages look like. You remember what it, it what it looked like, and that imprints on you. Even watching this movie just now a handful of times as a 43-year-old, it has imprinted on me uh, the, the look as well as the music. And the music, again, I was well acquainted with the music. I knew all of the songs without ever seeing the movie because it's just so everywhere in our society. But yeah, getting to pair that music that I've known for so long with the look, really great time watching it i think it just falls a little bit short as a christmas movie i'm really glad that you got a chance to watch it and and i'm glad that this podcast is giving you an opportunity to see things that you haven't seen before i certainly feel that way every time i'm seeing different ones i'm like i would never have sat down and watched this movie and it makes me happy that you know we've had our bummers we've had our kiss kiss bang bangs right but we've had these ones that you're like i had no idea that that you had you know that you were going to touch my heart in the way that you did you know even if in this one it might have been Sally and Jack's love story, you know, it, they might have had different elements that people take from it. But I still think this is one that you should absolutely go watch. Watch it between Halloween and Christmas. <laughs> this could be a wonderful Thanksgiving flick. You know, it does have a, it does have a feeling of a Christmas movie that you don't have to watch at Christmas time. So many of these yeah. movies feel right only at Christmas time. Uh, 100%. This is, this is a movie you could really watch pretty much year round because it has so many things that don't need to rely on Christmas. Though it is a Christmas movie, it doesn't need to rely on the Christmas season to be consumed. Unlike the movie that we're watching next week, and I'm going to play a little clip. Uh, okay. It goes against everything I just said. It is a derivative <laughs> copy of something. It is maybe not great. I don't know. Haven't seen it before because it didn't look great in the theaters and so i didn't watch it uh i know i'm really setting it up that build up (laughs) with with that fantastic build up let's take a listen hello little girl how dare you enter the grinch's lair the impudent the audacity the unmitigated gall you've called out the thunder now, get ready for the boom! Gaze into the face of fear. Booga, booga! Mr. Grinch, my name is Cindy Lou Well, if they hadn't said Grinch so many times and it was just that voice saying stuff, I'd have been like, I don't know what this is. But clearly, it's got to be the Grinch. (laughs) It is Jim Carrey's 2000 version of How the Grinch live action, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I don't know how that's going to go because the the animated movie is a classic uh, and not one of my favorite uh, Christmas movie classics. And you know I love me a good TV animated special about Christmas. Uh, I think I'm very clear about that. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, even the animated version from the 60s, not my favorite. I'm wary of how this one is going to go down. But you guys have to come (laughs) back and listen to it next week to find out. 
Very much looking forward to it. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic so that we don't have to give you a present with a severed head in a box. What's in the box? What's in the box? All I can think of was seven watching that whole like scene. <laughs> Gross. I know. Thanks for I listening. Know. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.